Well, you can say hi if you want to. Hi, this is Howdy. Hello. Hi. Hi, this is Greg Lamont. Welcome to the Velocast. Nice, really nice, yeah. Hello everyone and welcome to the Velocast. Today we'll be looking back at the elite men's road race of the UCI World Road Championships in Yorkshire this weekend, as well as the men's under-23 event, both of which were somewhat controversial for various reasons. So kicking off with the under-23s, when is a winner of a race not the winner of a race? Answer? When he spent over two minutes drafting behind a team car in the convoy and the UCI eventually decide this falls foul of their notoriously ambiguous regulation on the subject, which, as the following discussion will no doubt attest, is absolutely no answer whatsoever. You know, it's really funny. I, I watched the race and thoroughly enjoyed it in spite of, um, you know, the, the mixed weather we've had in Yorkshire all week. But frankly, it's it's become a bit of a farce now. Um, I, I genuinely don't care about the race anymore, which is actually a real disservice to people like uh, Sergio Higuita, Tom Pidcock and Samuel e. Battistella, the, the now, I suppose, champion, because they all contributed to a fascinating finale. But all anybody wants to talk about is the UCI's ambiguous rules, their application, the timing of that application. You had crowds in Yorkshire booing the decision to to disqualify the, the chap who'd won the sprint. It's just, for me, it symbolised a week of UCI win goals, um, which did a disservice to the sport, because in spite of the weather, we actually had a cracking week's race, and I really enjoyed the world. But I'm now, I'm back to being sick of the UCI, and we're only two or three days after the thing finished. <laughs> UCI, uh, disservice to the sport, controversy, own goals. When have those words ever been used in conjunction? Oh, yeah. All the goddamn time. time. (laughs) Right, shall we look then at the offending article, uh, it being regulation 4.7 of article 2.12.007. God, this is boring me even as I'm reading it. (laughs) (laughs) It says that for for a one-day race, the, the penalties for sheltering behind or taking advantage of the slipstream of a vehicle are, and that there are various Swiss franc amounts to be handed out at the UCI's mm-hmm. discretion for, for each infringement. And they range from uh, 200 Swiss francs per rider to 500 Swiss francs for the, the driver. Uh, and the, the, I think the, the note which is of particular interest here is at the bottom of that little table, which says, in addition to the, bo- the above provisions, in serious cases, in cases of repeated infringement or aggravating circumstances, the commissaire's panel may eliminate or disqualify a rider and or exclude a license holder and that is the the provision by which all of this hinges mm-hmm. um and you know you'll get people say it's, it's not the uci it's independent commissaires we've had this discussion again and again but the actual ground rules are laid by the uci and listening to you read that regulation, you know, the the relevant regulation in the rule book, it strikes me again how woolly it is. You know, is it is it okay to draft for ten seconds? Is it thirty seconds? Is it a minute? Two minutes seems a bit excessive, but you know, wh- where's the cut off point? Now, I've always said I don't approve of drafting behind cars at all, and there's there's a real polarisation of opinion on this. A lot of pros um, I've seen tweeting. 
it's perfectly valid, you know, middle of the race, it didn't affect the final result and all that kind of thing. And then you've got people like me saying it should never happen. Now, the simple answer is both of us are, are equally valid opinions, but it's the job of the governing body to lay down the law, to make sure that this thing isn't based on opinion. It's based on clearly understandable regulations. And guess what? Just like every other rule that we've talked about over the 10 years we've been doing the Velocast, that clarity is lacking. You know, the uh, government bodies letting down the commissaires yet again. It's not the commissaires, well, it is the commissaires' fault, but if they had iron guidelines, they wouldn't have to get mired up in this kind of opinion-based shit. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're absolutely right. The blame for this falls squarely on, on the UCI. Their rule to... to paraphrase Captain Barbosa from Pirates of the Caribbean, it isn't so much a rule, more of a, a guideline. Mm. And, and as such, I think the UCI has allowed the idea that drafting when you make your way back to the peloton is the norm. Mm. And that notion has permeated right the way through the teams, the writers and the fans, to the extent that it is just seen as being part of the, the sport. Now, we either allow that to be the case and the UCI then writes it hard and fast into their regulatory uh, framework that if you're coming back from a mechanical or a crash, which we determine to be just bad luck, then it's fine and you will not be sanctioned for doing it. But as you say, it has to be written into to the law in order for people to read the law accordingly. Because if, if crashing or mechanical is considered just bad luck and therefore the normal rules of fair competition should be suspended, that where I can't see how other incidents of bad luck shouldn't be treated the same. You know, you get yeah. sick. Isn't that just bad luck as well? Yeah. I mean, the, the UCI needs to draw a line in the sand and let everybody know that they will be applying the rule equally. And we've been discussing this privately, and I think you mentioned to me that you'd, you kind of popped this on, on Twitter, and I've had various uh, replies back to it. But the other thing that I think is actually, in a weird way, coming into all this is the notion of actually changing the sport so as to remove the ridiculous number of vehicles following the peloton. Yeah. As, as it's not only drafting where they're a problem, it's rider safety that we've talked about. And it's also, I think, which was central to your point, the bad optics stemming from an environmental perspective of that many internal combustion engines buzzing round the peloton. Yeah, I mean, something needs to be done. And change is going to be painful. And I have no faith that the UCI are the bunch to put that change through. Um, and sadly, the actor that will put it through isn't really standing in the wings. You know, it's not going to be Velo and it's not going to be any of the interested parties. You know, you've got teams sponsored by massive petrochemical giants, Ineos uh, uh, and, and, you know, Total and all that kind of bunch. But in this case, the I mean, the other farcical thing is they disqualified him hours after the infraction took place. You know, we didn't have... Um, a commissaire on the spot warning them, saying, look, you've, you need to pull away, you're drafting too much. And there's speculation, actually, that the, the whole sanction came to light as part of a complaint from maybe even the British team, uh, you know, subsequent to the race. But after the point where the infraction took place, and we can argue till we're blue in the face about whether it was right or not that he should be disqualified for his two minutes behind the team car. Excellent skill, by the way, staying about a centimetre off the bumper. I was thoroughly impressed with his skills. I mean, but, given the, the UCI are now sanctioning esports, I think another <laughs> way that they could 
possibly um, get get into introducing new types of cycling sport into to the world is is bumper riding. You know, mm-hmm. how close can you get to a, the bumper of a team car before you end up going arse over to across yeah, the, the, the back the, window? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the farcical thing though is that after that point, the UCI allowed the race to continue, and we've very seldom seen riders pulled during a race. We have seen it, particularly after they have fisty cuffs during Grand Tours and that kind of thing. You'll all remember that. But Ekoff was actually instrumental in the finale. You know, he contributed a vast amount to the race later on. He was a pivotal part of that finishing group. He changed the way the race was ridden. He changed the result because without his work, I don't think we would have seen the finale that we saw. So they're disqualifying somebody who actually had a material effect on the race after the event. You know, it's... I don't even know where to begin. You know, we, we've... I'm, I'm genuinely baffled by the whole thing. You know, they should have sanctioned him at the time or not sanctioned them, because they can't undo all of the effect that he had on the race at that point. No, absolutely. And, and regardless of whether he wins or or not, or, or even as instrumental as clearly was the case in, in deciding the outcome, because you're right to say all the work that he subsequently put in affected the, the race, that it brought us that that result, you know, not just him winning, but the riders who finished second, third and fourth. Even if he makes it back to the peloton, riding as a riding as a person who is flouting the laws to the extent which he has to be removed from the results of the race, disqualified from the race, his very presence there, whether it's in the outcome or whether he is involved in a crash later in the peloton, you know, he moves to the left and it causes somebody to crash, or just his. As I say, his very presence is yeah. affecting the outcome of, of the race. And he he affects it from the moment he violates the regulation where he has to be disqualified. So the question that's been posed for me in all this is, what happened to this much vaunted video referee that the UCI had been talking about bringing in to solve these kind of problems? The UCI... The UCI could have saved themselves this monumental cluster fudge by having this video referee speaking to the commissaires on the road and either issuing the fine and, uh, you know, essentially yellow carding the rider for what he was doing and then a subsequent red card if he failed to heed the warning or just simply going and DQing Ekoff immediately. Mm. We shouldn't have to wait four hours before a decision is made. I mean, yeah. It's just, you think about any other sport, would would someone infringing the regulations to, to this extent be allowed to complain on for the rest of a game or the rest of a tournament before the the regulatory body suddenly decides that, well, actually, you know, that, you know, that game that you played two weeks ago, well, actually, we, we've got to dis- disqualify you from the entire tournament, or yeah. it's just it's a nonsense, isn't it? It really is. And I actually feel really sorry for Neil Sekov because think about this he's a young man, and the quality of the under 23s just now is absolutely stunning. You know, to pull off a victory like that against the, the calibre of riders that lined up in that race is a, a highlight of his career. You know, afterwards he tweeted that it was the happiest 40 minutes or whatever of his life until it was was snatched from. So Miele Battistella has been robbed of the moment of joy, you know, immediately on the podium after the race. Um, but if you look at Ekoff, 
since he was a wee boy, you know, his passion for cycling goes back a long way. He's been watching professional cycling in the telly. And every single race that he's watched, there's been a rider doing what he did. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's become normalised, not even in the professional foul way. It's just part of the game. You get commentators essentially praising people for how well they're working the caravan and coming back to the group. I heard, it's, and I, I I don't mean to single anybody out, as I'm sure we, we could, you know, pick, if you go through footage and coverage over the years, you could pick any commentator so I'm not picking on Tony Gibb here he just happened to be the guy who said this in the the elite men's race and it's stuck in my head specifically for these reasons so please don't feel I'm having a go at anyone in particular but it's just testament to how you know know, how much this has permeated the, the cycling world's understanding of how the sport works and if that is the case then fine as we've said before the UCI needs to write it into the regulations but Tony Gibb when talking about the the caravan and there being two groups in, in the road in the men's elite race he said well it's good that they're letting the the caravan through because that'll help that group catch up with mm-hmm. with group one you actually gonna just take a moment and, and consider what you've just said there, Tony. Yeah. It's good that vehicles are being allowed into a gap in order that another group of riders who haven't crashed, who haven't suffered a mechanical, have in no way suffered anything that you could attribute to bad luck, are now being helped to catch up with another group who have worked hard to get that group in that, that gap in the first place. This sport is crazy. Yeah, and a lot of it does come down to internal combustion engines. Anyway, congratulations to Samuele Battistella, a good uh, silver place for Stefan Bissiger of Switzerland, and Tom Pidcock continues his rise to the top with a, a bronze medal. But I, I would rather have been talking about the race, but you know, you can't get away from the fact that the guy who crossed the line first for doing, albeit for a bit longer than we've seen, you know, but he wasn't hanging on to the car, a, a la Nibali or whatever. He's doing what he's seen professional riders do since he was a wee boy at every single race that he watches. Remember the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro, you and I commented about how Gideon Thomas and Chris Froome had been sitting beside behind a car for ages. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just part of the game and this inconsistency is ruining the sport you know you've got fans who have taken the trouble to go out in really appalling conditions to support the riders and the people of Yorkshire and the people from around the world and around Britain who travelled there deserve credit for their perseverance in the terrible weather they're really passionate about the sport and they're booing you know they're booing after the thing for this disqualification so not an under-23 race for the ages, uh, but it was, at least it gave us something to talk about other than puddles, which is, you know, my, <laughs> my main thing to in talk about. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the conditions for the men's elite race were, uh, well, it, do you remember the tour of the borders? Was it three or four years ago, where there were pictures of folk holding their bikes above their head and wading through waist-deep water? That's what it reminded me of. It was absolutely... And I really felt sorry for the team mechanics that night, having to strip and rebuild everything after what was essentially a power wash for the bikes for six and a half hours. Well, from one big controversy to, as John's just uh, highlighted there, a slightly more benign one, the elite men's event continued with the theme that has pretty much blighted the 2019 Worlds, the weather, something that actually only the elite women's event managed to avoid. Torrential rain battered the region overnight, which caused a 
later the start, the rerouting of the race and indeed the form book to be thrown out of the window into a very, very muddy puddle, all of which brought the somewhat surprising result of Mads Pedersen becoming the first ever Danish rider to be crowned world champion. I thought I was watching a club run in April in Peebleshire for most of it, Uh, you know, the breakaway. Every rider was covered up in a gaba or, you know, insert your your weatherproof garment of choice. Uh, it was hard to tell who was who. We were having to rely on team shorts and, and helmets. And my initial reaction when I saw the thing had been shortened was, what a bunch of Jessies. You know, standard Galloway reaction. In Scotland, you'd go and you'd ride a time trial on that man. And then one of our beloved subscribers sent me a picture of the entrance to butter tubs, you know, the, the climb that was pulled out. And you couldn't have got a posty van through it. And let me assure you, you can get a posty van through most things. You know, this this genuinely looked like a small lake in the road. So I think the organisers had no choice whatsoever. And to be fair to the guys, it was grim to watch them batter through the elements for all of those hours to get to the finishing circuit where we had an extra circuit inserted to make up for the fact they'd taken the climbs out earlier. But they, they took to it with gusto. It was still raced at a good pace, which saw a lot of people pull out. But it wasn't a great advert for Yorkshire, was it? I mean, nobody's looking at that and thinking, I think I'll go to Harrogate for my holidays in September. Well, I mean, should anybody be thinking that anyway? But that's an entirely different thing. I mean, I, I think you, you're maybe being overly generous to both the UCI and and the organisers in that. And I, I, again, you know, you kind of feel that you're kicking a puppy when it's when it's when it's down here. The the people, the organisation, the fans, the roads, and the countryside itself are all fantastic. We've seen that over and over again. Mm-hmm. But I think this kind of hagiography that's that's been going around for the past few years that Yorkshire is the be-all and end-all of world cycling needs to maybe just wind its neck back in a bit. There are times, and the autumn is definitely one of those times when oh, yeah. Yorkshire shouldn't be holding blue ribboned events. I mean, I mean, who'd have thought that bringing a week-long series of road races to an area where at this time of the year it rains 75% of the time might end up being adversely affected by wet conditions. It's a bit like the organisers in Doha a few years ago, just crossing their fingers and hoping that the weather across the week would be, I don't know, around 25 degrees and a bit cloudy. It's not going to happen. And I I did think this at the time when when Yorkshire was was granted um, the the rights to to hold the world. I'm going, September, late September at that. I mean, God, it'll be an absolute miracle if if they manage to get through the entire week without there being really, really torrential downpours. And it's not as if this isn't something that the the region should or come as a surprise to to anybody. We've seen in the news and even earlier in the in the year where. They, they had to repair roads and, and bridges coming down because of, of torrential rain and storm conditions. So I, I don't, as I say, the, the, everybody involved in, in Yorkshire and, and what has been built there are all brilliant people and, and so on and so forth. But I, I just kind of feel that this, this might have been a, a step too far for them. That yeah. Yorkshire in the summer or Yorkshire during the tour, the Yorkshire, even affording it, it's it, that duh, is is fine and dandy, but no, not all the time. We, 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 we can't just write blank checks to Yorkshire and expect because the people and the roads are fantastic that everything will work, work out. 
Yeah, it's Britain. I mean, you're making very fair points. It should have been foreseen. And you could argue that um, perhaps more preparation should have been made. But with that kind of rain, I, I genuinely don't think there can be much they could have done. So no, we can, no, we can criticise the kind of the 10,000 foot view, if you like, which is why are they there in September where it rains three quarters of the time in Yorkshire. Um, but at least, at least the riders gave us a show. And we had the standard no hope or break at the start. With you know punters we've never heard of like <laughs> Nairo Quintana and Richard Carapaz and uh, Magnus Court and Primoz Roglic, you know it's you know, nice was... to see these young pros getting some exposure <laughs> before the big guys start riding. Do you know I was thinking as soon as um, because. Given the horrific conditions, we we lost coverage for for a lot of that that race. There was all sorts of talk about fog at Doncaster Airport, so the plane that, that acts as the the relay back down to to the the, the studio truck and and there for then back up to the the satellite was delayed in refueling. So we we watched replays of stuff that happened earlier until such times as they got on to the the circuit and we we had the static camera of them going across the, the finish line all of which to, is to to say that when we heard first of all that Nairo Quintana was in the break my immediate thought was oh my god he's taken to attacking in the fourth week of the Vuelta now too yeah, I mean, it was astonishing. I actually think they just looked at the weather and wanted to get back quicker. <laughs> and I don't mean to the finish. I don't think a single one of them had any intention whatsoever of finishing. I think they just wanted to get onto the circuit so they could abandon with some dignity. Yeah, um, It was horrible. Uh, and that break was never, never going to be anywhere. You know, it was... Uh, it, I genuinely think they were trying to stay warm and get, get to the, the circuit so they could finish. Uh, but... I mean, we also had, talking about cars, was it Gaston or Luxembourg who was run over by the Irish car? Mm, you know, yeah. it, it all comes back to this massive caravan. Uh, but the big early development before the, you know, the, the fight really started, the battle for the victory, was that Philip Gilbert, who afterwards said his legs had felt fantastic, you know, he was, he was really ready, uh, had to abandon after a crash. And there was a really touching moment, because, you know, in the Belgian team, uh, he's sharing a, a room with Remco Evanapol, who was one of the big favourites after his strong performance in the, the time trial. Remco actually stopped and essentially gave Phil Gill a cuddle and tried to help him get back on. But Gilbert had been looking easy enough in his legs, the way he was pedalling, how he looked in the bunch, that I think he could well have been a factor in the finale. So he was the first of the big favourites, really, that, that went out. And through no fault of his own, you know, he didn't abandon. He just went down in a crash and wasn't able to continue. And... Expanding on what you said there about Remco of Enipol, not only was it really touching that that he put his arm round Gilbert and said, "Come on, you know, I'm going to ride with you." In doing so, he sacrificed his chances of of being in contention for for the jersey and the title him, himself. Because you and I spoke, and, and a lot of people have spoken about how Evenepoel was a rider that, of many, it has to be argued in, in the Belgian squad, a rider that had to be watched, one that could have taken the title. So in looking after Philippe Gilbert, he was abandoning his chances of of contesting the, the win. And, and I was struck by that, not only for the, the self-sacrifice there, and as our, our friend Derek pointed out, he said, you know, well... Ivanapol's got years and years ahead of him. This is likely the last chance that that Gilbert has. Mm-hmm. 
My, my thoughts were immediately brought back to how Philip Joubert was with James Knox at the Vuelta, for example, and how there does seem to be more of a demonstrable camaraderie within that squad than I think I've seen in, in most squads yeah. Um, yeah. In, in recent years. And, and I don't know whether that's stemming particularly from Joubert himself. If so, the team, I think, is going to really, really miss him more than we would have possibly uh, considered uh, or it's just something that we ha- just haven't noticed before that is endemic within that team this kind of sacrificing everything for for everybody else uh, but in a more demonstrable way than just race tactics if you see what I mean yeah and the Belgian team actually were, were the big disappointment of the entire race for me and I think maybe Gilbert going away was a big part of that. Um, it won't surprise you to know I've been been chatting to our, our Belgian mole Peter about it. Sorry to, uh, to, to cut across you. I should of course be saying that I, I'm talking about the Belgian team acting as a kind of de facto declining no, quick, quick step. Yeah, yeah. yeah, sorry, on you go. Aye, um, and and Peter was. He essentially said seven potential winners and we finish eighth. Shit show was his exact <laughs> phrase. Um, I mean, he really wasn't happy, and I think the weak link in that team was Greg Van Avermaet. Um, you know, you've got uh, Rick Verbrugge had to write on the board as they passed the pits at one point, Greg, communicate. You know, and I think if Phil Gill had been there to marshal them, to take charge of that team, you know, to essentially sideline Greg Van Avermaet, who looked strong but didn't look like part of the team at all, then it could have been a very different finale to the race. So I think that crash and departure by Philip Gilbert was actually instrumental in scuppering what looked like an invincible Belgian team. Which is interesting because we, we did talk in the preview about how Greg Van Avermaet may be the rider who doesn't fall into yeah. that deconic quick step model of all for one and one for all. He he does seem to be somebody that 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 won't ride to, to that model and, and judging by that comment regarding Greg, please communicate <laughs> it really does does uh, prove that, that to be the case. Yeah. Uh, other names that dropped out early, Sam Bennett, who was my pick if it had been a relatively conservative race, cracked fairly early on. I think the the Welter was clearly you know, an end to the season for him in terms of his form. He was struggling, was just plain dropped. You know, there was no way to, to sugarcoat it. He went and Dan Martin dropped out. And then the big surprise for me was Alejandro Valverde, who in a prophetic moment said that to win this thing, you would have to be mad. And he just missed the one consonant out <laughs> and he would have been right. <laughs> It's a conspiracy, that's what it is. (laughs) We just misheard due to his accent. No, I was quite surprised at at Valverde. There was a few surprising moments, I guess, that we we have to talk about in terms of both tactics, the not so much the form book, but the the way that the, the finale of the race played out. But we'll get to that in a second. The other surprising thing for me was Petter Sagan attacking with, what, about 4K to go with a two and a half, three minute gap to make up and the only explanation I can possibly get for that is he didn't want to cross the finish line with anyone else round about him he wanted to take the the Sagan applause which he duly got in fairness 
Yeah, and saluted the crowd. And I think there's an element of that. I think he takes his his tenure as world champion very seriously. You know, he lost it to Alejandro. But before that, we'd become so used to seeing him in the Arcon Seal that we'd almost forgotten what he looked like in a trade jersey. So I think this is a really special race to Sagan in his career. And he wanted the equivalent, if you like, of... Uh, we saw it in the women's race with Lizzie Dagnan being allowed to go ahead old school to say hello to our, our friends and family. And I think Sagan just wanted to thank the crowds, you know, for a, a race that's been so pivotal in his career. And he saluted them and they went nuts for him. So uh, job done. It was clearly too late for him to get back on and be in contention. But I think he wanted to show that he had the legs and show some respect to the race. And as ever for Peter Sagan, you know, as he, as he grows older and more mature, he's still a bit silly, but mainly he just does a credit to the sport. It was it was a good thing to see him salute the crowd at the end. So to what happened in the finale where we have Italy totally in the driving seat. They've got, got two riders in the, the lead group with Matteo Trentin and Gianni Moscon. And of course, we, we are faced with the possibility that with numerical advantage, we could have had Alejandro Valverde handing over the World Championship jersey to Gianni Moscon. And I mean, I can, I can only imagine what Twitter would have been like had that been the case. Well, the, the hashtag uh, anyone but Moscow actually was was trending for a wee while. And I've got to say, I mean, you know my opinion of Shani Moscow, and we've talked about it off mic as well as, you know, I've been fairly vocal about my opinions on him sure. on the show. But as a teammate, he did a sterling job for Matteo Trentin. You know, he was dropped on drags, he fought to get back on, went to the front, took another turn, uh, and actually looked solid enough until he finally blew that I thought he might be in there at the finale. But we can't take anything away from the fact that Matteo Trentin was the protected rider out of those two and Moscow and, you know, did his pan and working for him. Absolutely, and, and all of which you would expect even when Moscon eventually did crack for, for the final time, Matteo Trentin has been protected. He's done least amount of work. The other two riders will know it and given also the amount of work I think probably that, that Stefan Kung did, you would expect him to be a bit more tired than Matteo mm-hmm. Trentin. We also saw Mads Pedersen be dropped on one of the, the climbs near the finale. Mm-hmm. Right, So he's demonstrably weaker than Matteo Trentin. So really, just you know, go put the kettle on, guys, and we'll, we'll see you on the podium for the crowning of Matteo Trentin as world champ. Oh, hang on a minute. That's not what happened. Yeah, and let's 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 not forget the other member of that breakaway, um, Matthew Van der Poel, who we talked about how in his preparations he'd been such a a dedicated preparer for this race by doing extra distance afterwards. And in the end, it was the distance that did for him. And mm. I want you to get out your Illustrator or Photoshop or whatever you use to design T-shirts now. And I want a ginger shaman T-shirt <laughs> because literally. Five seconds before Matthew van der Poel just went pop, and it was just pop. He looked strong. I think I tweeted, there's a sense of inevitability about this. You know, will anybody be able to overcome fate? Press tweet, and Matthew just pops. I was sure he was going to win. He'd been pulling hard. He'd looked really strong. He'd, when he joined that group, he'd looked incredibly impressive. We're in, you know, the final kilometres of the race. 
what, 12 kilometres to go or something, you know, just a, a handful of kilometres before he gets to sprint. We've seen what he can do in a fast sprint. Think about the amount of times he's ridden Julian Alaphilippe and uh, Peter Sagan off his wheel. Think about that magnificent comeback to win the Amstel Gold Race. He's got the power. He's done the preparation. He's used to the distance. I press tweet, boom, he's gone. Now, a, a ginger shaman t-shirt what I think I'll be doing is facilitating Matthew van der Poel a tire iron and you in a locked room for a half an hour for scuppering <laughs> the poor guy's chances well there's a flip side to that actually because a few minutes later I was just about to, to tweet don't discount Mads Peterson you know because we've seen Mads in the classics he's done so well he's second in the Tour of Flanders won the junior Paris-Roubaix he's got a great Palmares um, and I decided not to. And just as I decided not to, he started drifting off the back. You know, that point where you said it looked like he was going to get dropped, he was gapped in the climb. And I thought, thank goodness I didn't tweet that, because otherwise I would have really <laughs> cemented my reputation as Ginger Shaman. Um, but I didn't. So I'm expecting gifts from a grateful nation of Danes. Because if I had, he would have been gone forever. I, I was I was chatting to to my friend, Cathy, uh, who does the uh, Villa Voices web- website, and just both of us expressing that kind of jaw drop, oh wow, as Pedersen crossed the line after uh, Trentin had, had started his sprint and we thought everything was, was wrapped up, but there comes the Mads Pedersen. And we were discussing how much of a surprise it was, but then brought up things like second place at at Flanders this year and how really it shouldn't be a surprise. And I think the reason, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe just speaking for myself, I don't know how anybody else felt, but it was a surprise for me, I think because, say, uh, Alberto Bettiol was a surprise winner of mm. uh, the Tour of Flanders. Therefore, the guy who finished in second place, also a surprise, was kind of overshadowed somewhat. But when you look at it, Pedersen has, as you rightly pointed out, had form across this year. His rise hasn't been uh, completely unnoticed. It's it's just been slightly overshadowed by more surprising things. And yet again, we see 2019 being the year of the young wunderkind. Yeah, it was a fantastic win. And I, I said just before we got to the finale that the important thing to bear in mind at this point, Trentin was the nail-down favourite. I couldn't see past him. I defy anybody, actually, to, to seriously say they didn't think that Trentin had that in the bag. We've seen his Palmares. He's used to the distances. You know, he's an experienced rider. He's had Gianni Mosco and working for him. Uh, we should have a special mention for Stefan Kung, actually, who dug so deep so often trying to drop them because that was his only chance of getting the victory. Exactly, yeah. But, you know, they managed, he, they managed to hang on to him. So Trentin's got it nailed on. And it suddenly occurred to me with about 5k to go that Matteo didn't look quite smooth, quite as sharp as we've seen him in the past. You know, he's like Sagan, he looks really relaxed when he's on absolutely cracking form. Now, he's clearly on form because he's up there at the front, but the two things that were a big effect were the distance. You know, this is the second longest race of the year after Milan San Remo. You don't get to race it that often, and even the most experienced guys aren't quite sure how their legs are going to respond. But also the weather. Mm. You know, we'd seen them in leg warmers. Trentin actually had his jacket on right up until the end. You know, he only got rid of it in the last handful of kilometres. So he must have been feeling the cold to keep that on when the race was full gas. And he looked a wee bit less than sharp. And what I said to folk was, you know, if you jump after that kind of weather, after this kind of distance, 
occasionally your legs just won't do what you expect them to. You know, you're in unknown territory. Yes, you've done the distance before, but never in that kind of torrential rain. You know, you've not ridden through puddles where your feet at the foot of the pedal stroke go under the water. So it's an extremely unusual set of circumstances. And it transpires that's exactly what happened. Trentine's head knew what to do. He performed everything perfectly. But when he jumped, his legs just didn't respond in the way that he expected them. Mad Peterson dug so, so deep. And by the time he crossed the line... He had time to, you know, take in the fact he was now world champion, you know, accept the fact that he'd won the race because he had bike lengths over Trentine by the finish. So it was a brilliant ride by Mads Pedersen, not just physically. You know, he dug in when he was nearly dropped. He managed to cover Trentine. But for Trentine, I don't think he put a foot wrong. I think just the distance and the weather got the better of his legs. Uh, it's a, a curious result, not so much for Mads Pedersen, I think, but more his, his trade team uh, going forward into 2020. We, we, I think it was Derek and I were talking about how Trek have been a very disappointing team across this year and uh when when wrapping up the 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 grand tours would would said that perhaps the performance uh, in the the kind of mountains competition at the giro was probably something that kind of saved the season to to mm-hmm. an extent there really this has saved trek's season i mean i know it's a it's a danish team and take nothing away from how ecstatic Denmark will be at, at having the first ever world champion uh, in, into next year. But for the world champion's jersey being on a Trek Sega Freda rider in 2020 will be enormous for them. Ah, and they've got some other riders joining them who folk will have heard of as well. So I fully expect them to have a better 2020 than they had a 2019, which was terrible. I mean, it was a genuinely terrible year for Trek. Um, I talked earlier about Remco Evanapol's cuddling of Philip Gilbert and trying to help him out was quite moving. I was also really moved when Michael Valgren crossed the line and looked up and saw the results. You know, the, just the sheer joy for his Danish teammate was was writ large upon his face. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things we love about cycling. You know, the fact that on this day, they're not riding for their trade teams, although we occasionally have seen combines in the past of trade teams. They're riding for their country. And that clearly meant a lot to Valgren because he was absolutely delighted. Right, before we go, you, you, you have a choice. We can bug you about the early bird offer or I think given this World Championship theme, we're going to bug you about t-shirts and other merchandise on the Velocast store. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Scott, as ever, has um, whipped out his crane and knocked up some... <laughs> <laughs> Some fantastic yes, and, and the court case is to be heard next week at People's <laughs> District Court. Uh, and has designed some fantastic World Championship um, merchandise. I, I said last week I'd bought an apron for the kitchen. I wasn't lying. I actually have bought an apron for the kitchen. You can buy an apron, you can buy mugs, you can buy some t-shirts. And as ever with Scott, it's a twist. You know, it's not just a, a rainbow jersey. Um, so I, I love them. Uh, they're selling pretty well. Uh, they'll, they'll come off sale, I would think, in a couple of weeks once we get to Lombardy or something, maybe. Mm. Uh, so uh, World Championship merchandise on Velocast or shop.velocast.cc. Of course, I'm going to bug you about the early bird. We're halfway through the, the two-month period where we offer an early bird for 
2020 content. It's going extremely well, so thank you if you've already subscribed. If you haven't, you can go to velocast.cc. 59.90 will get you all of our content for uh, for next year, and it really helps us, you know, plan and and get ready for next year. So have a think about that. Um, it's been a really enjoyable World Championships. I'm slightly puzzled because halfway through it, I was absolutely scuttered by the weather. You know, just watching it, I thought, this is absolute mince. But some of the races at the end really made up for it. So I, I think Yorkshire, bad decision given the timing. Turned out all right, really, other than that under-23 farce that I'm still bailing about. Well, I said either or, so thank you for making a liar out of me, Mr Galloway. But everyone else, thank you for joining us today. John and Sarah will return on Wednesday to discuss the women's event at the World, so be sure to look out for that in your podcaster of choice, because for my money... The women's, the elite women's event was was the race of the entire week. Uh, John and I, of course, look forward to speaking to you all again soon for the next edition of the Velocast. <laughs>